the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I mean, I no doubt in my mind, if the dog had not been there and kind of, you know, freaked him out with all of her barking and it had scared him, I, I think that he would have tried to either hurt my mom or he would have come back. Hey guys, welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting across from Alexis Linkletter and next to Billy Jensen. And Alexis, I am so jealous of your onesie right now. I have an extra. You do? Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll have to do a little changey poo. During an intermission? During an intermission. I got one for you right away if you want one. Oh, I'm so ready for it. But you can borrow and I'll get back from you next time. Okay. Well, I'm wearing this... uh, jacket like a windbreakery situation that i feel like is gonna make some noise yeah we can't have that we'll have you change in a moment um do you have one for me (laughs) i actually do (laughs) i have a batman onesie that might fit you billy you know what it's always the legs that's the problem i actually had many a onesie for a very tall person that I burned. <laughs> I, I didn't actually burn them. I just threw them away. But I did have XXXL onesies that I wish I would have seen. We know we're getting for Billy you. for Christmas. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or for Halloween. Or for Halloween. We should all get ones. We should just have an official first degree onesie that we wear every time we record. Can we sell those? Yeah, why don't we do that? In I the mean, merch store. That's no, but because they don't <laughs> exist on the type of merch we're selling. But um, it is a we good can idea. Get, we can get our own. We'll do that. We can do first degree like sweatsuits, like sweatpants and then a sweatshirt. Yes. Mm. A little matching situation. Right. Yes. I like that. Yes. Um, before we get into our day, we wanted to do a little recap of the weekend that we had. Yes. Let me start. Billy and I attended Jacqueline's Lady Hang mm-hmm. in LA. She had a giant marquee with her name on it. And Katie Knightley and Becca Tobin. <laughs> I'm just. It is the best trolling for Kelty ever, though. Like I, I feel like someone did that on purpose. But well, and, and by and by the way, and I mentioned that when you you had posted something about the Lady Gang and said, "What should our book be named?" Yeah, and I said it should be uh, Katie because she had mentioned it. They they spelled her name wrong. Not spelled it wrong. They, they just got it, it wrong. Totally different name. They got yeah. it wrong. Totally different name. They said it, instead of Kelty Knight, it was Katie Knightley. <laughs> Amazing. And, so good. and I wrote on on the page and I said. It should be Katie Knightley's tips for how to crush it or something like that. Oh, my God. And then she said, or it should be like the next murder I'm going to be solved is yours. <laughs> is so, yours. She bas- yeah. so she basically. I that. I'm like, well played, Kelty. She's so, witty. So, so Kelty just gave me kind of like a murder threat, which, yeah. was, which was. She did. That which seemed, was interesting. That that's, seems about right. That's how Kelsey. She... Kel- 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 Kelsey. Kelsey. <laughs> Kelsey. I'm going to do Kelsey now. Dude, oh, my God, you guys. I called her Katie in conversation today accidentally. Did she die? Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's catching on. It's yeah. catching on. But the show. Was amazing. Was really, really good. Thanks, so funny. And uh, another thing that happened is I walked in with Billy. We came late and everyone stood up and cheered. Billy and said, had Billy? a standing ovation, which is annoying because I barely cheer, had cheer, a standing cheer. ovation. And I'm just like, what the fuck? And I was walking in with him and I'm like, this is what purgatory is. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know what? Like, he, <sighs> Billy, we love you. But you know what? There's a point where your ego is going to be fed too much, and we're going to have to knock you down. We're here to smack you, you down. You know what, though? And not we're not there yet. No, but you got no, more we're room? not. Then we're not there yet. <laughs> when I get the Grammy, which, Gram- which Grammy, <laughs> I'm what? actually on the I'm on the ballot for the Grammys for what for spoken word um, album. They consider that an album. Like what they, his Chase Darkness with me. 
I hope you don't. That's a stretch. You don't want to win like that. Why? Because that's loophole? not a real thing. It's like he's like circumventing Although the Although my great grandfather did win that. Jimmy Carter won. My grandpa won for a spoken word. But really? it actually was. It was a spoken word with, with music. Okay, but you know what? If I win, I will thank Art Link Letter. Okay. Fine. What about me? I will thank Art Link Letter. You know, <laughs> what do you have there? <laughs> yes, I will, I will thank Bill Vanek. I'll, I'll thank I'll thank Katie Katie Knightley, and then I'll, and I'll thank. You. I hope you don't win that way. You don't want to win that. Why? How would There's I win no otherwise? Other way he's you just win. want the Grammy statue. That's not real music. Well, it's listen, not, I, I don't win want that, that for you. Wow. I want that for me when I when we put out our book. So yeah. I want to win that way. So I get it. Yeah, it's and not gonna, way to guys, win an award. Not gonna, you never. It's, it's not going to happen. Listen, but, I never yeah. thought I was going to be like on iTunes because I can't are. sing, and here I am twice. So <laughs> now we do have a song. We need to circle back to this. Yes, bitches in the bathroom. <laughs> I did. Find, <laughs> we could win a Grammy. Alexis and I, and by Alexis and I, I mean Alexis's ex boyfriend and I. I was there, and I wrote the lyrics. They wrote the music. No, I wrote the lyrics. I. Do you not remember sitting in my bed doing this? I hate that you say this. <laughs> By the way, we have a, uh, <laughs> if you stick around for killing time, we talk about what grinds our this, gears. This. And this, this is what grinds. Lies. Oh. Lies. Lies. lies and stealing someone's thunder and taking. Listen, the, I, I, I did not steal the thunder, but well, maybe I transferred the thunder off to your ex-boyfriend. Literally, the way the Mario. lyrics are are how I talk. <laughs> the, it's a pi- no, they're not. I wrote those. I, they were at least 50-50 between me and yes, you. Yes, yes, for sure. But like, you, you can't did cut not me write out that. of it. Okay, fine. <laughs> Alexis crazy. and I wrote a song called Bitches in the Bathroom. I still do have it on my computer. I, I brought it out recently. We're going to play it next week's Killing Time. Okay, we'll play it. We're going to play it. You know what? And if you guys want it. We'll put it out on iTunes. <laughs> and I also have, actually, all I have left is the remix. Somebody remixed it for me. I think I have my old hard drive in my, it's like in a bag. I think it's on there. Okay. The well, original. All right. We're going we're gonna to bust out bitches in the bathroom. But until then, Billy, what day is it today? There's a lot of days to choose from today. There are. But. It's National Bring Your Teddy Bear to Work and School Day. Oh, my God. There are so many better days. Let me tell you. <laughs> he always picks the bad one. Okay. You know what? Here's a better one. N- International Beer and Pizza Day. And he picked Bring Your Billy. Teddy Bear to Work Day. Yes. It's also National <laughs> Moldy Cheese Day. It's also National Pet Obesity Awareness Day. Pet Obesity Awareness? Oh, I thought it meant like, like okay. well, pet. touch other people, which is wrong. <laughs> which is wrong. You shouldn't do. It's also... Submarine Hoagie Hero Grinder Day, which I don't understand what that Sounds means. Sounds sexual and um Well, it's like is the Grinder app sponsoring like a Subway five dollar no. foot. Yeah, it sounds like a hey. it sounds like a crossover, like a cross promotion advertising. It, it does sound like that, but it is uh locally the Subway sandwich or the submarine sandwich what is you called call it? You said sandwich. Sandwich. What how do you sandwich. say subway? Sandwich, subway. Oh. Sandwich. <laughs> you said sandwich? So the sandwich is called oh a hoagie or a hero or a grinder or a submarine sandwich in different parts of the country. That's what makes America great. <laughs> that, <laughs> it's not really. Well, how do you say sandwich? <laughs> how do sandwich. I say like I'm gonna get a I'm gonna get a hoagie? I, I say a sub. A sub. Yeah. I say sandwich. I see sandwich. No, like if you're gonna get a, a sub person. though, if it's gonna I be I still on... say sandwich. Yeah, oh, wow. like a Jersey Mike sandwich. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Ugh. Same. How do you say soda? Soda. I don't say tonic. Or pop? Well, they say pop in the Midwest. They say tonic in, in New England. 
No, they Taunt. don't. Yeah, they do. That's a lie. I've never yeah. heard that. No When way. I went to bartending school for that one week what? in college, the guy used to say, you can go downstairs, get a, uh, a, 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 a iced tea or a tonic. He probably meant tonic, tonic no, water. No, no, no. I, no, he meant like tonic. soda. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. Sure <laughs> never never bartended a day in my life, but I know how to do it. <laughs> I've done it. Okay, well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. world, we interact with strangers every day. Whether it's at the checkout line, at the grocery store, the gas pump, Starbucks, we trade small talk, glances, and whether we realize it or not, every interaction with a stranger is like a game of Russian roulette. Strangers run the gamut in terms of the significance they could have in your life. Some people even marry people who they meet at a car wash or in the bank line. So will the next stranger you meet be inconsequential like most of them are? Or will you cross paths with a serial killer? Who knows? Maybe you already have. Our case today takes us to June 28th, 1994 in Round Rock, Texas, a picturesque suburban town on the outskirts of Austin. And in 1994, it was home to about 35,000 people. The top song on the radio was I Swear by All for One, and movies like The Lion King, Little Big League, and I Love Trouble were in the theaters. And this is happening on June 28th, and June 28th was a Tuesday. And on this particular morning, the employees at the Austin Semiconductor Company were becoming increasingly uneasy. Because one of their most reliable employees who worked there, 38-year-old Darlene Anderson, had failed to show up. She had been in the day before, which was Monday, and had made no mention of plans to miss or be late to work the next day. And she had just gotten back from a trip with her son and daughter to Disney World, so there was no chance there was an impromptu vacation that she just decided to take. After a trip to Disney World, you just want to decompress. So you don't rush out for another trip. Something was up. Darlene was the manager of marketing and sales at this company, and she had a reputation of being extremely punctual and reliable, and she wouldn't miss scheduled meetings or appointments. She held degrees in nuclear and electrical engineering. She had been in one of the first classes of female cadets of Texas A&M while pursuing her master's degree, and so she was a force to be reckoned with. And so when she doesn't turn up, you know, something is up, and by midday, they call the police. Right. And Darlene lived not far away in an upper class neighborhood in Round Rock Ranch off of a street called Gaddis School Road. And she'd moved there a little over a year prior. And Darlene had two children, a 14-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl, as well as an ex-husband who she was still extremely, extremely close to, who lived about 20 minutes away. So when the police approached the well-manicured beige two-story brick home that Darlene lived in, They found it locked up very tightly with nothing suspicious that could be seen from the outside. They also noticed that Darlene's green Mitsubishi Diamante was in the driveway 
and also locked. Inside of the home, the police found her purse, her driver's license, money, and credit cards. But what they didn't find was Darlene. The only thing that seemed to be missing from the home were her keys and a pair of white Nike tennis shoes with red stripes that she always wore. They searched the inside of the house and there was nothing noticeable missing, but there were things that they could observe that painted a picture of what Darlene had done the previous evening. The clothes she had worn to the office during the day on Monday were lying neatly on top of her bed and the bed itself was crisply made and had not been slept in. There was a pile of towels on the couch in the living room, almost as somebody had been watching TV, started to fold them and then got distracted by something and abandoned the task. Another thing that they noticed was that the security alarm to the home was not set, but the house's air conditioning was blasting. So it didn't seem like Darlene intended to leave the house for any prolonged period of time. The police immediately contacted Darlene's ex-husband named Dan Anderson. And Dan explained to them that he had both of the kids on the night that Darlene disappeared. And the exes communicated about the kids daily. And they really were essentially best friends since they had gotten divorced in 1990. He had seen her only a few days before because he had picked Darlene and the kids up from the airport after she took the two of them to Disney World for vacation. And after he grabbed them, the four of them went to dinner before dropping them off at Darlene's. So, of course, the first thing the police do is check Dan's alibi. And it checks out. He had been with the kids at his house that was 20 minutes away all of Monday night. Then they go around and speak to Darlene's neighbors, and one of them had noticed something the night before, although they weren't sure of the significance of this. He had actually seen a gray pickup truck outside Darlene's house between 8 and 8.40 p.m. So they wondered, you know, could this be someone randomly parking on the street who's going to a neighbor's house or something? Or could this be the first clue in figuring out where Darlene could be? They didn't know, but it was better than nothing. And those who knew Darlene were immediately panicked. And they had reason to be. It's like she had vanished without a trace. Immediately, a missing persons report was filed. She was 5 feet 8 inches tall with short, straight blonde hair, blue eyes, and weighing approximately 150 pounds. Within days, a search party of more than 700 volunteers, some riding horses, got into action in a massive two-day search that included helicopters, bloodhounds, ATVs. Success and flyers were distributed in Austin and in the surrounding towns. And there was also an incredibly thorough search of Darlene's home, too. Now, that first search was for Darlene herself and things that were on the surface. Now, this one was a hardcore search for clues, going through everything. And all the searches turned up nothing. Within the weeks that followed Darlene's disappearance... An incredible amount of resources and effort was being poured into this search. And her case was actually getting a massive amount of media attention, but they still had no leads. It was as if she just vanished. Weeks passed and Darlene's family remained in emotional purgatory. Her children knew a lot about the investigation and Darlene's ex told the Austin American statesman that, quote, he and the children are seeing a counselor, but there are still the sudden outbursts of crying and sorrow. The kids will see a picture or hear something about them that reminds them of Darlene and they'll begin to cry. 
One time my daughter left me a note to come and tuck her in when I got home from work. And when I walked into her room, she was clutching a photo of the four of us as she slept. And remember, Darlene had returned from a trip to Disney World with her kids the day before she went missing. So they were close and this weighed heaviest on her children who needed their mom. It's so, so sad. Just imagine the confusion of that. Oh, yeah. And to have no idea what happened. Yeah, it's awful. So although every day seemed like a million years, you know, time does not stop. A month ticked by. And there was so much focus on the search for Darlene that many hadn't even heard or realized or been informed that another woman was also mysteriously missing from the same area. 39-year-old Sandra Dumont had not been seen since 12.30 a.m. on July 25th, and she was leaving her job as a car dealer in an Austin nightclub. Sandra's boss had walked her to her car that night to make sure she got there safely, and he said that he was under the impression that Sandra was actually going to meet someone and had plans after work, but he didn't know who. Her friends started to become increasingly worried when they couldn't reach her for a number of days and insisted that the police conduct a welfare check. And when the police did arrive, they observed that inside Sandra's house, there was no evidence of foul play. Her clothes and luggage were left there. And the only things that were missing were her glasses, her purse, and her 1980 silver Toyota Corolla. There had been no activity on her credit cards or bank accounts, and Sandra also had money at her job waiting for her to pick it up. And it hadn't been picked up. So something was wrong. Even if someone was going to pick up and leave, they'd take their money with them. If they were on a trip, they'd be spending money on their credit cards and bank accounts. Absolutely. And a missing persons report was filed. And Sandra was described in her report as five foot six inches, 125 pounds, with shoulder length hair that was dyed bright red. Where were these women? The police had nothing to go on in the way of clues, leads, or tips. Both of the women were single and they dated, but neither were in anything serious. And the police didn't have laptops or cell phones or anything to search for clues in like we do today. All they could do is look through their personal belongings and hope something would stand out. Sandra had an address book with dozens of names, but who really knows what the significance, if any of any of the names in her address books would lead anybody to our case. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we are completely take for granted now, because oh, yeah. if you went missing, they would go to your phone. Who yeah. are you texting who was the that last night? Person you texted. Yeah. The and last then, 10, the yeah. last 10, because a, an address book, there's 200 entries. Where do you start? Yeah. yeah. How do you know if, yeah. If, if they how do you know if it's, fr- it's from a long time ago or whatever? And then, I mean, that's the, I vaguely recall too that they would only um in the call logs, if you got the phone records, it would only be long distance that they would mm. uh, mm-hmm. measure or something, or only local, something like that. Yeah. So it was it, it's so much easier now. And especially I mean, it's not just your text too, because you might have been DMing somebody on Instagram. You might have been DMing or a somebody dating on, app or something. Or a dating app or whatever. So I mean, if you can get that phone and that phone was there and you get a lot and she was in her house and it seemed like she was in her house and then she was taken from her house. You're going to get a lot of info. So, but in the weeks following Sandra's disappearance, a police officer from Austin had been patrolling the interstate daily on his way to and from work. And he noticed that for a few days in a row, there was a silver Toyota Corolla that was sitting on the side of the road. And he pulled over and took down the plate number to the 1980 Corolla, and it was KHC 
54T. And when he got to the department, he ran the plates. He was thinking that maybe the car had been stolen. And it turns out it hadn't been reported stolen. So he said, okay, I did my due diligence, went on his way, forgot about it. And the car was towed by the city and put in, put in a lot. Now, days after this happened, that same police officer is reading the newspaper. And he sees an article about Sandra's disappearance. And within that article, it describes her missing Toyota. And he recognized her name immediately as being one, the, the name that actually popped up when he ran the plates. Remember, this guy was an Austin Police Department officer. Round Rock had their own department, and they were the ones that were handling Sandra's case. So this was just happenstance. This was a fluke that he was able to spot the car and then connect the dots. Well, and it's good police work. I mean, it's like, absolutely. I see a car sitting there. It's like, it hasn't moved for a few days. That's usually suspicious. I should check. And I see why it wasn't reported stolen because she was missing yeah. and they weren't, is she... Is, is it foul play? Is she gone by her own accord? So you wouldn't report the car stolen. Yeah. So it wasn't till he saw, like you said, the article where he was like, oh, you know. So after all this happens, this guy has a hunch. He remembered where the car had been parked. So he drove out there and spent more than an hour walking around this field, which was at the time a cow pasture. And at one point during the search, and he's wandering around through ravines. I mean, it's it's a huge open space. So you don't even know what you're looking for. But he had this weird feeling based on what he had learned in this article. So, you know, he's about 400 feet from where the car disappeared when he smelt something. And it's in that moment he knew he was close. So in a ravine about 400 feet from where the car had been parked was the decomposing body of a woman that was covered up with a piece of plywood and weighted down with an old tire. The entire body had been concealed, except for one leg, which was protruding out from under the piece of plywood. He thought, like, it had to be Sandra. So the police were called to the field to secure the scene. Now, we're dealing with Texas in the middle of summer, so accelerated decomposition was something that they obviously expected. But they knew that Sandra had dyed red hair, so they thought that they'd be able to, quote-unquote, unofficial ID her on the scene. But when they removed the wood from her body, there was no red hair to be seen, but instead chin-length, straight, blonde hair. The body wasn't Sandra. It was of Darlene Anderson. If Darlene's body was found near Sandra's car, possibly their disappearances were connected because we had two women that mysteriously disappeared, one of them's bodies, one of their bodies is going to be right near one of the other's cars. So, and it's something that had crossed their minds as they were investigating each case, but they really had nothing conclusive to tie them together until now. Uh, You know, it's all about location and they were in the same location. So the police swarmed the area. And sure enough, within an hour after they got there, they made another discovery. They found Sandra's body, not far from Darlene's. And looking at the state of their bodies, they noticed similarities in terms of their clothing. On both of the bodies, it appeared that their clothing had been forcefully cut off from each of the bodies. And, you know, this field was actually less than a mile from Darlene's house. She had been really close to home the entire time. 
So this was big news and people were scared that they were dealing with a serial killer being loose, preying on single women in the area that could be lurking around looking for his next victim. And the loved ones of both Darlene and Sandra were devastated. And both families had participated in the search efforts, were holding out hope that they'd, you know, find their loved ones alive. And those, you know, hopes were now being crushed. And Darlene and Sandra were both taken in for autopsies and were both conclusively identified with dental records. Sandra had been killed by a 22 caliber gunshot wound and her jaw was also fractured in three places. Darlene had been killed by at least one blow to the head and the police believed that both women had been sexually assaulted, although they couldn't know conclusively because of the decomposition that had occurred. And the police theorized that each of the women had likely known the person who had killed them. Darlene's ex-husband spoke to the media through tears, and he said that he didn't understand how such a cautious person like Darlene could have been abducted from her house. The house was locked. Nothing was missing. Nothing was out of place. And he said, whoever did it was good at it. The police put the characteristics from each of this case into VICAP, which is the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program to look for any other killings that might have had similar MOs. Right. And while they didn't know who had committed these crimes, both of these women were put to rest and they had memorials for each of them and candlelight vigils and all sorts of things. And here's some audio from Darlene's funeral. We live in fear of anger. Anger that she died a violent death. We are angry at the brutality to which she was subjected. And I think that anybody that came in contact with her, as I did at an early stage, realized her undivided love for her children. I guess just be at peace. And everybody loved her. And I think that's such a beautiful tribute. That she was really truly loved by a lot of people. And that certainly means a lot. And she's smiling down upon us. So just because the two victims in this case were put to rest didn't mean that the families were looking for answers any less. So the police were still looking for leads in both Sandra and Darlene's lives. They had no leads at this point. No, nothing. I mean, they had gotten a number of tips, but nothing had panned out. And they believed firmly that these two women knew whoever had done this to them on some level, even if it was just being acquaintances. So then someone from Sandra's work came forward and tells them that she believed that she recalled Sandra talking about meeting a guy named Roger in the weeks leading up to when she vanished. They hadn't heard this name before, but they had searched her apartment. Um, She had address books. She had notebooks. She had all sorts of things. So they decided to pour over these things again, this time looking for a Roger. And uh, as they poured over her address book the second time and reexamined this evidence, Interestingly, they did find contact info for a Roger Fane scribbled into the book. 
And meanwhile, one of the detectives decides to go over the names of all of those who'd volunteered to search for Darlene. Following the line of thinking that those who kill sometimes like to inject themselves into an investigation, not only just to like keep tabs of what's going on, but some of them also enjoy the thrill of observing the pain and fear that their sick acts create in the world around them. So this one detective is sifting through all the names on this list and something catches his eye. A Roger Fane aided in the search for Darlene, and he even brought along two of his horses to help cover more ground. Interestingly, too, Sandra had a horse. So they start being like, huh, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, what are the odds that a Roger Fane would be in Sandra's phone book and aided and, in and the search aid, for Darlene? Aided in the search for Darlene. With it's not like... If, if with a horse, if, yeah. Exactly. yeah, and if he um, was in the search for Sandra, okay, maybe that's it because he knew Sandra and he yeah. was friends with Sandra. But why would he be searching for Darlene? Just the odds of that. It's possible. It is yeah. possible. I but mean, it's, given last it's, week's it's episode, it's possible, right? But it's it, it. You open yourself up to a lot of scrutiny. Right. And questions. So that's all that's happening here. Right. So discovering this is obviously chilling to the cops. And there's now a connection between this guy, Roger Fane, to each of these two murdered women. They do a background search on him. And they learn that he has a rap sheet that's a mile long. It includes violence and sexual assault of women in multiple states. And this could really be their guy. So luckily for the police, Fane's address was actually listed and Sandra's address book. So they go and they pay him a visit. And as they're heading over there, they realize that Roger Fane actually lived within a half mile of Darlene's house. When they got there, they found a handsome 40-year-old man with a dark Fabio-type hair style. I can't believe it's not butter hair. Yes. You know, if, if you remember that commercial. Fabio. Yeah. I don't know. Some people don't. Yeah. Well, this is, this is the early... Uh, the early 1990s, but yes. Uh, think of hair of a guy that's on the cover of a romance novel. Sure. Yes. He was a construction worker who worked part-time at uh, local home improvement stores. And when the police stepped inside, he flipped on that charm. And he came up with one excuse after another when faced with their questions. Right. And he's the kind of guy that any grizzled detective would have zeroed in on as like, ooh, you're like the charming sociopath, mm. really handsome, really personable, really believable. Truly. I mean, he gives off some people like when they're being weird, they set off those weird alarm bells like I'm in danger. This guy didn't do that. So the police searched the home and they were looking for anything that could tie him to either woman. And these two women had very different lives. I mean, so the, it was a very abstract evidence that they were looking for. But they were especially looking for a twenty-two caliber handgun because that had been the weapon that killed Sandra. And while the gun itself never materialized, they did find an empty holster for a twenty-two caliber handgun. Hmm. Coincidence? I mean, how many can there be? Really? So... In addition to this empty holster, which, you know, is just circumstantial evidence, the search turned up many miscellaneous items that may or may not have been related to these cases, but would need to be tested. And the police took everything. I mean, they weren't fucking around. They wanted to just see what he had. I mean, these are two different women. Who knows how he could be connected? But one of the things they also took, in addition to whatever digital stuff he had in the early 1990s, 
was a role of film that had yet to be developed. And they took that with them with the intentions of developing it to see what was on the roll. Yeah. And you, I mean, that's one of the things that you would find, you would go through. I have some of that stuff. Yeah. People, mm-hmm. people had tons back then. That's how you took pictures. So you had um, some people that would take would take photos and just not get Never around to them, yeah. not get around I still to have developing. a disposable camera for when me and Jack went to La Jolla and went underwater oh, snorkeling, snorkeling and yeah. we got an underwater camera. It's sitting in my drawer. Yeah. Cause I'm like, Ugh. I can't imagine how much undeveloped film just exists in the world. Yeah. yeah. Tons, yeah. but I should develop that. That'd be interesting. Maybe you should. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. Then one detective gets the idea to check with local hospitals to see if Roger had possibly come in recently to be treated for any injuries. If he had abducted two women, there may be defensive injuries that had been inflicted on him that he needed to get treated for. So when they get to the Seton Hospital in Austin, they learn that in fact, Roger had been there relatively recently to get treatment for a broken hand. It was a pretty severe break to his right hand and doctors later described his injury as a quote unquote boxer's fracture. Yeah. The reason why they call it a boxer's fracture is that boxers punch so hard, but they're always wearing tape and gloves Mm -hmm. when they, when they punch without the tape and gloves, a lot of times because they're punching so hard with so much force, they break their hands. That's what Uh, happened. Tyson did that as well. Right. So that's why they call it a boxer's fracture. So he saw treatment for this boxer's fracture on July 26th. And if that date is ringing a bell, it should, because that's the day after Sandra went missing. Mm. And remember, Sandra's jaw had been shattered in three places, probably from being punched in the face. And it didn't help matters when he was confronted about this hand injury. He couldn't stick to the same story about how it happened. One time he said it was slammed in the hood of a pickup and another time he jammed it in a toolbox. Yeah. And their case against Roger was starting to shape up, but it was about to get even better. So a... Uh, crime scene tech calls with the news. They developed the roll of film that they found at Roger's house. And he had taken pictures from multiple angles of the very field that Darlene and Sandra's bodies had been found in. So these images placed him at that spot. Yeah. I mean, that's not a coincidence. Who takes pictures of just like a just field? A, just a random field. And just happens to be a field. Where when... you have bodies. And it, it makes you wonder, did he do it before to plan? Or mm. did he do it after to me- remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or to somehow to get revisit. off from it. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, 
The police finally had what they needed for an arrest. And the Round Rock police took him into custody at the North Austin home of, you know, he had a strange wife, which we'll get to, but that's where he was when he was arrested. And his bond was set for $5 million, which was a record high in Williamson County, which is where this occurred. However, and this is going to be really upsetting, the district attorney would only bring charges against Roger Fain for Sandra's murder. They didn't believe they had enough to secure a conviction in Darlene's case, even though they knew it was him, even though the body was right next to the other body and they were sure it was Sandra. um, They didn't have enough at this point, although they did, they were committed to continuing the investigation to build the evidence they needed. And they kind of promised Darlene's family that like, we're just not there yet. We will get there. But they wanted him in custody because they had heard rumors that he was going to flee to his native Florida. Yeah. So they indicted him on what they felt secure about. And uh, I, I kind of understand that. I mean, this yeah. guy is dangerous. But this was just super crushing news to her family because they had been flying out. They were there for the searches and they were just, uh, I mean, she's the one with the kids. She's the yeah. one with the ex-husband. Yeah, devastated. Yeah, exactly. And to not, have the DA kind of supporting you in that. But I, I get that it's strategic. You also can't risk losing him. Of course. Yeah. So once Roger was arrested, he kept denying and denying hurting Darlene and Sandra, although he did admit to knowing them. He said, I'm not crazy or insane. I'm not a psycho killer or a kidnapping rapist from hell, which is a crazy fucking quote. And after his arrest, Darlene's family saw a picture of the man who had killed their daughter. And Darlene's mother made a sickening connection because she remembered something. She remembered weeks ago when she was searching for her daughter. But they still had hope at that point. They were fearing the worst, but they still had hope. And they were sitting in a room at Gaddis Elementary School, which was the headquarters for Darlene's search efforts, when a man walked in. And he kind of interjected himself into their conversation. He introduced himself as Roger and just kind of stared at Darlene's mother. And she took note and looked away. And obviously she had more on her mind, you know, like her missing daughter. But she remembered that that was him and he was there. It's got to be the most chilling thing. So after Roger was in custody, the police learned how Roger had met Darlene. I mean, it it became clear with Sandra. He frequented not only the bar where she worked, but they had horses at the same place. So it was a lot more clear as far as how he knew Sandra. But Darlene was kind of a mystery. But they did eventually learn that he had met her four months prior to her body being discovered at a Builder's Square store where he had been working at the time. And now Builder's Square was a big box home improvement retailer headquartered in San Antonio. It it was kind of like a subsidiary of Kmart, and uh, it was very, very similar to Home Depot. So while Darlene was shopping, she was approached by a handsome store associate. He said hello to her and to her two children that she had with her while she was shopping. And he immediately just turned on the charm. And uh, they conversed, they chatted up, she got whatever weird home improvement stuff she needed, and no one really knows what happened after that. Either way, he was fired from that store in June, which is the exact same month that Darlene vanished. 
And the store that he was fired from actually wouldn't comment on why when newspapers asked for a comment on that. And again, it's not clear how their relationship progressed after their initial meeting at the store. But this story from our first degree, Megan, will probably offer some insight. So timing, I don't know exactly what day it was, but it was a, you know, normal day. It was just me, my mom and my sister um, and then my little nephew. My mom, I was 40 at the time. My sister's 22. I was 12, 12 years old. And then my nephew was about two. And we went to a home store where you get like building supplies and paint and stuff like that. And we were going to pick out um, some stuff for my sister's house because she was putting new tile in her kitchen. So it was just us girls and a baby. And we were checking out tile and, you know, we're asking help of some of the people that were working there. And a man helped us. He was super duper nice. He and so helpful. Um, we chatted him up. We thought he was just so handsome and helpful. And, um, you know, it was... Uh, you know, just kind of, um, like just really nice that he was, um, like chatting us up and wanting to help us uh, take everything out to the car. And he even held my, um, nephew for a few moments while we were talking and which we thought was really funny because my nephew didn't really like strangers that much, but he really took to him really well. And, um, anyway, it was just kind of weird that, uh, we were all still talking about it. Like later in the day, we're like, Oh, remember that? you know, cute guy that helped us and, um, and that, and that was that. So we, you know, you know, just kind of forgot about it after that until the next day when my mom, this is really weird, but back in the nineties, like we, you know, lived on this, like in this like little tiny neighborhood in this town called Pflugerville and we didn't have cell phones or anything. And like most of the socialization was out in our neighborhood. So, um, we always had like the garage door open and a lot of people smoked back then. Um, and so they would like go outside, have a cigarette multiple times throughout the day. Um, and like the neighbors would be out there and they were just like always chatting. Well, one of those days, it was a normal day, garage door was open. My mom, um, had been in and out and she, her dog was outside. Um, it's a collie. Um, her name was Patsy and she wasn't very old, um, maybe about a year old. And, um, had never really, you know, done a lot of barking or anything, but one day when, or that day when my mom had gone back inside, she kind of heard Patsy barking and she heard a knock at the door, at the front door, um, which is strange, of course, because the garage door was open. So she went to open the front door and, and saw a man standing there. She opened the door. Patsy was outside, um, with her and she, uh, you know, was just like, how, how can I help you? And he said, Hey, I live in uh, the neighborhood, you know, down the road, and I drive by here several times a week, and I saw your collie outside, and I, you know, just, I thought she was really pretty, and I have an old collie, you know, he's older, but he's not neutered, and I would really like to breed him, and I just wanted to know if you'd be interested in breeding your collie with my collie, and my mom, like, she was like, no, you know, she's not very old. She's only about a year. We're going to get her spayed. We're not interested in breeding. And then she, in the middle of, like, her sentence, she said, oh, wait, aren't you the guy who helped us from Home Depot yesterday? And as soon as she recognized him as the person from Home Depot, his energy changed immediately. And she said that he got kind of flustered or, like, kind of clammed up 
And he was like, to like agitate a little bit. And he was like, oh, he was like, maybe so, you know. He's like, well, maybe I'll just, you know, I'll stop by another day because the dog like started barking and like was barking really loud. And so he, he just kind of like left in like a hurry, I guess. Mom didn't really think much of it, you know. She just thought, oh, okay, well, he, you know, lives nearby and, you know, he saw the dog and whatever. Um, and then she uh, told me later on, she was like, hey, that guy that was so nice yesterday, like, stopped by the house and he has a collie. And, you know, she was talking about it like it was totally normal, whatever. He, like, never showed up again. Um, and then, I mean, a few weeks later is when we saw a news on the news that he um, had been arrested for um, killing a woman. Um, and, you know, it was just super crazy because his mugshot was up on the TV and my sister saw it from her house, called my mom. She said, hey, mom, turn on the news right now. Like, we didn't know his name or anything at the time. You know, we didn't know anything about him at, other than we all, you know, thought he was you know, cute and helpful and, you know, we kind of talked about him or whatever and, like, that was it. But then, you know, his, it, he was had, like, a very distinct look about him. So as soon as my sister saw him on the TV, she knew, like, right away. You know, sure enough, they found um, two bodies about three and a half miles from our house, um, two ladies that had been murdered and um, were in a field. So how did Roger know where they lived? Well, I mean, we have speculated, like, a number of, of things. We speculate okay well maybe you know we had written down some dimensions on some paper maybe just somehow our address was on this like old mail or you know just something like that or was it that he was leaving his shift and followed us you know like how and it's weird because he did actually live pretty close he lived in a neighborhood in round rock but it wouldn't have been you know our neighborhood wouldn't have been like a thoroughfare unless he was just like driving around looking for something or you know it wouldn't have been like a normal route to take to his neighborhood um you you would have taken like main roads so we still like to this day like have no idea how he found us and guess what he didn't actually have a collie either i mean it just it was just a weird excuse to knock on the door and you know my mom was actually alone in the house when he came so she was you know of course later on was like oh my god you know thank god my dog was outside because there's no way like he could have definitely like pushed his way in he was a pretty big guy and my mom's tiny so obviously the next question you'd ask someone like megan who had this experience is if it rattled them i mean this is super scary and they were watching this case unfold Immediately, as these women were going missing, they have this interaction with this guy at this home improvement store. He pops over when the mom is home alone, who's in the same age range as his victims, and uh, then he's arrested, and his face is all over the news. And he met one of his victims the exact same way that he met Megan's mom. Because we lived in that area, we heard about the missing woman, we heard about the searches going on and that kind of stuff, and... We even heard when the bodies were found, we like were talking about that. We're like, oh, they found that woman. They found another woman. Like this had been going on for a few weeks, you know, all this stuff in the news because he wasn't even arrested, you know, until like probably, you know, a couple weeks later after they found the bodies. And so that when he was on the news, that's when she was like, oh, my God, like he came to our house. This is the guy who was at our house and 
helped us at Home Depot and held our baby, you know, and it was like so freaky. Of course, after, you know, once we realized who he was, this woman who had gone missing, I think she had um, a young daughter my age. I think her daughter was like 12 and I was 12. And so like a lot of like things around, um, you know, the case, like, appealed to us especially because she lived like so close so it was kind of creepy because you know we were again they found her body three three and a half miles from our house so who exactly is roger fain we briefly touched on his criminal history but now we're going to paint a better picture for you Right. So it may or may not be a shock that Roger Fain actually talked his way into his first victim's apartment when he was only 16 years old. This was in Florida, uh, which is where he was from. And he did this by pretending that he was a friend of the neighbors. He went inside this apartment, came up with some story for why he was there. And as he was leaving, he pulled out a blade and stabbed a woman who was 33 years old named Mary Frances Warden several times during a struggle as he raped her. And this is a 16-year-old boy. The struggle was massive. The TV ended up on the floor shattered. But then Mary suppressed her cries and didn't yell out because she didn't want her six-year-old son, who was in a neighboring room, to come out and witness the attack that was being inflicted upon her. And Mary said of what had happened... Quote, my first thought was how vulnerable we all are, we being women alone. She was the first of a trail of victims, but thank God Mary would be one of the surviving ones. And the attack left her bleeding and terrified, but she was okay enough to grab her son from the next room and somehow drive herself to the hospital. And once she got there, she collapsed in her car where they performed life-saving procedures upon her. And Roger Fain was arrested quickly after Mary's attack. He pleaded guilty in juvenile court. But what's fascinating, and this is a long, uh, this will be the beginning of a long line of um, weird loopholes he manages to exploit. Because as he pleaded guilty in, in juvenile court, the prosecutor was trying to get him indicted on adult charges. But there are all these loopholes you're you're able to um, access in some of these situations where due to this, he was out relatively quickly. And this would be the first of many situations like this. Mary was interviewed by the Austin American statesman by phone after the news of the two murders of Darlene and Sandra had broken. And she said, I'm just bewildered that he's out harming other people. Can you imagine being her and seeing like, oh my God, this is nothing compared to what's to come. Yeah. Yeah. So then in 74, Fane and an accomplice abducted a couple that was going into their house. They kept him captive for two days. Fane raped the woman and then drove her out to this dirt road and let her go and told her that she had to withdraw $3,000 from her bank account and return with the money or her husband would die. But instead, she called the cops. And so for this case... He was indicted on a slew of charges, and he was convicted and sentenced to 35 years. But he escaped weeks into his sentence with two other inmates and remained free for 16 days. And they eventually got him, sent him back to jail, but he was still out 
in just nine years. Are you guys seeing like a a Bundy parallel effect? This is like Very exactly Bundy. what he did. Yeah, he's just like, eh, I'm over jail right now. Nah. I'm just gonna handsome. Bounce. Has all the attention of women. Super charming. Mm-hmm. Like nobody Can- would believe that this handsome, kind young man would do anything horrible. Yeah, he could do juries. Like he was a above genius. the law. Yeah. So he gets out of prison and moves to Denton, Texas, and was on supervised release until 1990. A year after his supervision ended, he was indicted once again for kidnapping and sexual assault. He abducted two women who were vacationing on South Padre Island, and for these crimes, which were first-degree felonies, he could have been given life. But like each time before, he pled guilty to lesser charges and received only two years. So, for these two crimes, these women were struggling for air, their hands were bound with electrical tape, and each of these two women had oil-drenched rags in their mouths. They for sure thought they were going to be killed. But in court, he convinced the jurors that he deserved another billionth chance. Right, and that case also involved them being abducted and charmed and seduced. It was, again, very Bundy-esque, and... um. The fact that he was able to dupe that jury was really unfortunate. The assistant district attorney who prosecuted that very case said the following in her interview with the Austin American Statesman. She said they bought his story. You have to understand that he was very charming. They believed that he was going to turn his life around. The 12 jurors found the soft-spoken defendant with the Hollywood looks guilty of two counts of false imprisonment instead of felony kidnapping. And that's So felony kidnapping is something you'd have to disclose in any job interview, whatever. But he kept finding these loopholes to get out of being transparent in everyday life. And she also said, in came in this real smooth, handsome kind of devil may care. And the jury believed him. They didn't think the women were actually kidnapped. So what the, the jury believed is that they went willingly and... It was some sex act gone awry, which was not the case. You know, Fane, we look at serial killers and we usually hear of these horrible, horrible upbringings. Yeah. But she made sure to mention here is that he was from a really nice upper middle class family with other children who seem to do fine and have done fine. And um, he's truly just like kind of a bad seed. She said he's intelligent, he's good looking, he could have done anything. And my feeling is is that he could have been one of those like CEO sociopaths. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I think that's what you're born with. Yeah. Him. I mean, I think he didn't have empathy, but he could have been like a nonviolent sociopath. Right. I mean, that was like a nature versus nurture type of thing. And those And I think he's just about seed because you know, it's interesting. This is a case where we're probably not going to get too far into his childhood because there's nothing of note. He came from a rich neighborhood, rich parents. His parents are still alive. They have, uh, they're professionals. They have master's degrees at the very least. Their other children are fine. Nothing's wrong with them. They live productive lives. He is this strange anomaly. Uh, we'll get into a little more, but you know, don't hold your breath because there's nothing to like pinpoint it to in his he childhood where you every can with a lot opportunity. of people. He had good looks too and the smarts. So he's just wanted to be the scum of the earth yeah. and he succeeded. And 
here's another thing to get you upset. So he served only 14 months of his two-year sentence. For those abductions of those two right, women. At the Texas Department of Corrections before he's released on mandatory supervision in December of 1992. So it seems like he's really charming his way along the way out of everything. Um, he's charming the juries. He's probably charming his jailers. He's parole, tra- officers, parole officers. Charming his victims. He's just like, he's got a line on him. Right. And the first time it was because of his age, it was juvenile court. The second, you know, and he stabbed a woman while he raped her. It's not Fucking like a passive insane. thing. Then he abducts the couple and at gunpoint rapes the woman and robs them. This, These aren't, these are terrifying. Then he abducts two women. And to hear that he's served less than five years in prison at this point is infuriating, but that's exactly what you're hearing. And that's the truth. So what's super interesting, so he's out of prison by December of 1992, just based on all these variables we just mentioned. But in 1993, he convinced somehow a woman to marry him. Her name was Deborah Brady, but I looked her up on Nexus. Her maiden name is actually Wheeler, so I'm not sure where Brady came from, but whatever. So they would only stay married for less than a year, and they eventually separated. And um, they separated three months before any of the bodies were found. So you wonder if that had anything to do with anything, mm-hmm. maybe. Who knows? But uh, I was just putting that marriage out there because it does come up later. So now Roger was yet in another trial, standing accused of committing the ultimate crime against Sandra Dumont. And I know what you're thinking. Would he somehow get away with this yet again? But thank God he didn't. And the jury in Fort Worth only deliberated for one hour before convicting him and sentencing him to life without parole. Right. And if you think that this is where Roger's story ends... You could not be more wrong. So he's a wily minx and uh, his conviction was overturned on appeal due to the fact that so it had gotten so much publicity that they actually agreed to a change of venue, which they allowed to happen. It did change venue, but the judge had forgotten to like sign a paper for the change of venue. So even though it had changed, he never signed this paper. So it gave them this like loophole and they allowed for another, the trial was overturned and they allowed for another trial. So everyone was terrified. Would this technicality actually lead to an acquittal? Um, did they feel secure enough in the evidence they had? Because Remember, this was 94. The DNA wasn't as concrete. Lots of what they were dealing with was circumstantial. They were very concerned that perhaps they wouldn't retry him. But luckily, that did not happen. And they did go through with another trial. And he was convicted again. But what was funny, they deliberated for just an hour the first time. They deliberated 12 hours the second time. So anything could have happened, um, you know. But if you think this conviction makes this story over, you're also wrong. Let's fast forward to 2005, 10 years after all of this took place. So while Roger Fain is sitting pretty in prison where he belongs, the Tarrant County Sheriff's Department, which is neighboring county in Texas, 
Arlington, Texas to be specific, had launched an initiative to try to solve older cases that didn't have the benefit of DNA technology when they occurred. And one of the top cases on their slate was that of a woman named Linda Donahue, who was 41 when she was killed. So Linda was a gorgeous blonde. She loved country western music and animals, especially her dog and her horse. She was described as vivacious and beautiful, and she had an active social life. By trade, she was a realtor, and she bought and renovated and then flipped houses, reselling them more than she paid for. Linda Donahue's body was discovered in June of 1987, and it was discovered by her sister, Bonnie. When Bonnie walked into Linda's bedroom, she found her naked body on the floor. She had sharp force injuries and had been strangled. And her clothes were on the floor, too, and they were kind of in shreds. And it suggested that the clothes had been cut off of her body before she was sexually assaulted. And it also seemed like the killer had smeared her own blood all over her, almost painting her with it. Right. So back when this had happened in 87, the police retraced Linda's last movements and learned that the last time Linda had been seen alive, she was spotted speaking with someone where she kept her horses at the local stable. The person she was seen talking to matched the description of Roger Fane. In fact, back in 87 when this happened, there was this whole controversy where they had a sketch and uh, they found a guy who looked just like him and then his fingerprint matched a print found in her house and then it turned out that she was selling her house and him and his wife had gone to look at the house with a real estate agent and it was this huge red herring and it's really incredible and terrifying that he didn't get implicated but he was innocent anyways so back at the time the police have this description but it was so general they had nothing to do with it and they didn't know how to leverage it to catch the person who had killed Linda they also knew that this person had been seen with a white truck, but they didn't have any other specifics. What do you do with that? So at the time, in 87, fluid swabs were taken from Linda's body, and they were processed as part of the original evidence. But obviously we know 87 technology did not yield good DNA results, and that's being generous, uh, or anything useful for that matter. So like many similar cases, Linda's went cold. But now that there was some weight behind their cold case unit, it was going to change. DNA evidence finally revealed the ID of Linda's killer. The detectives requested that all the evidence in her case be tested with the new technology. And in only a matter of weeks, they had a complete sample they could enter into CODIS. And what do you know? It was a match. And it was a match to Roger Fane. And a triple confirmed the match. The detectives obtained a warrant to acquire another another sample from Fane. And in late December, the DNA match was absolutely confirmed. On the heels of connecting Roger to Linda through DNA, he was tried, convicted, and given an additional life sentence. Right. And I think something interesting to notice is that, I mean, the victims were all in this very tight age range. We've got 38 to 41. And Megan's mother, our first degree's mother, was 40. And I said to her, but I didn't realize it at the time. And I said, well, Megan, maybe you were the target. 
And she said, no, no, no. My mom was a target. She's right in the same demographic that he went for. And it is so chilling that he was essentially casing the house and casing this, this situation. And he met Darlene under the exact same circumstances at the exact same store. And it's, it's terrifying. I mean, I think it's so chilling that, you know, Megan, Megan's mother and their other sibling and their nephew like met him under the exact same circumstances. And I bet you the exact same thing happened Mm -hmm. because he went to the house and was like testing the waters and something didn't feel right to him. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to get away with this. But when you think about what happened with Darlene, nothing was missing except for her keys and her shoes. It's almost like he was like, come out for us. I don't Mm -hmm. know what he did, but it's like in an interaction that was similar, he was able to get her outside. Subdue. I don't know. He also had a gun. I mean, this is prior to Sandra and Sandra was killed with a gun. So it could have been gunpoint. Who knows? She was alone. No dog, no family. Um, But it seems eerily similar to that of what happened to Megan's mom. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, this is, this was his thing. And how many other people could he potentially have done that too? It's like, you don't know how many people he's crossed that he was also kind of sussing out. Like that's what the terrifying thing is. Well, you find the one from 1987. Where did he not leave DNA? Where did he do it? Where the police department was lazy or didn't have the money to catalog the, the cold case DNA. Yep. Well, I think for, even for this last case, it's like they barely even had enough DNA to actually test it. It was like they had a like stroke a of luck. Yeah, it was on the, well, d- so basically the swap stick. This, so this was in 87 and this this DNA had been tested multiple times. They take one swab yeah. and uh, basically what happened was is like they used it all up before. Yeah, they, no, they didn't. And have, they were like scared the stick wouldn't uh, yield anything, but it had yeah. a full sperm on it, a yep. sperm skeleton. Which, which is the best thing they have for DNA. So um, yeah, they didn't have, you know, whole genome amplification at the time. They couldn't what did you say? whole genome amplification. So they couldn't take the DNA and kind of replicate it over yeah. and over again. Um, so the idea now that they say, like, Oh, we only have a little bit. You can actually do a lot. You, you can that. do a lot with that now. But back then, remember the first case that was solved with DNA was in 86 and it wasn't even in this country. It was in England. So they weren't even thinking about that stuff back then. Yeah. And not to mention that, how many sexual assaults could he have potentially oh, God. been responsible for th- that the rape kits had been tossed? Remember how many rape or kits were tossed tested. with GSK? Well, how about when he yeah. was 16 when he stabbed a woman and just raped her but yeah. didn't kill her? Oh, God. You know there's so many, so many cases. Then he abducted... He abducted two, four more people. A no, couple this is of- what this guy, this guy, the reason why this guy, this guy was smart, like you were saying, he so was smart. educated. He attractive. was from, he was attractive. He was from a good family. This was his job though. His job was to be a predator and kill people. That's why he worked at a, uh, like a Home Depot type place. That's why he was just a, const- well, a just very, a construction it's guy. Very gold stink. Golden State Killer. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I don't want to say just a construction guy in the sense where but listen, my dad was a was a construction guy. So, but his and he he put his, his entire, entire focus yeah. was about finding victims and how is he going to find victims? And obviously, you know, he would see victims. I mean, think about it at a home improvement store. This is this is the uh, the early nineties. He probably right? assumes that's a single mom. Mm-hmm. No, but truly, I feel like it's like he saw it. It's a it's Home Depot or whatever. So when he'd see a single woman with kids, he was like, "Well, 
they must be single. Yeah. Because why would they be here picking out tile if they had a husband? Yep. Yeah. Now it's now it's super normal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, he's he's not stupid. No, I mean that's what he was. You know, I often talk about serial killers now and how serial killers are going. They're like sharks and they go where the food is. His food, you know, and that's why you see so many sex workers that are murdered, so yeah. many um, opioid addicts that are murdered uh, because they, they're they're in those those situations. And then you have a guy that comes along and says, this is this is potentially easy for me. He had another way of doing things. And what his was, was that, you know, he had this sort of ideal victim, these women that were in their late 30s, early 40s that seemed to be single moms. I mean, he held the kid. You know what I mean? Ugh. He he presented a, a, a like, I'm a nice guy. Uh, he presented like, I could be a family man, set it all up, and then does this ruse, which, like you said, he probably used on everybody else. And there's probably countless other people. Countless. And, and if anybody's listening to this that, that lived in that area, send us, and if you ever remember this guy or, or a story like this, but he would meet women at these stores, find out where they were from, and then drive around and then just come up with some idea of how to do it. Well, and that's, it's, it, it's so scary because how many people do you have interactions with Kind of like that, but then you don't even really remember the person enough to like kind of identify them later when they saw him on TV. Like that could have happened countless times to people that still have no idea that they were that close to a serial killer. Like that is terrifying. Well, and that was the theme of the episode. And it's like what we brought up in the beginning, because like every encounter with a stranger is an opportunity, not just for a serial killer. Some people marry the people they meet in the grocery store line. Some people, uh, most of the time, it's inconsequential. And occasionally, it's it's the worst. But, you know, these women were all attractive. I mean, let's talk about Darlene. She literally had degrees in engineering, like, you know, nuclear engineering. She was yeah. a genius. Uh, Sandra was a marketing and advertising exec. And Linda was a real estate agent who was stunning she looked like a young beautiful dolly parton and she liked to flip properties and and was super successful at it and it's like these were smart successful established women who probably had all the confidence in the world and it had nothing to do with what you did or you know you're just you're just vulnerable being in the world and um i found this last thing to kind of leave our our episode with in all these women. So basically they had this chance encounter that had their lives stolen as a result in an Austin psychologist named Michael Fresquez was interviewed by Janet Wilson for a story, um, for the Austin American Statesman. And he really put it best. And I just wanted to repeat exactly what he said, because I thought they were perfect words to, to part with. And he said, quote, unfortunately, Most of us think we are a good judge of character. When we learn something like this about someone we like or think we know, it's a real sense of betrayal, both of another person and of our own judgment. All of us have a social facade, and in much of our social interaction, that's all we see of each other. Luckily, not many of us have such malice underneath that facade. And a word of warning. Mm. 
to leave you with. Roger Fain, despite killing three women, kidnapping countless others, and raping others, is eligible for parole in 2024. Oh, my God. Less than five years away. And if he was released early, it certainly wouldn't be the first time he got out of his full sentence. So be wary of those helpful strangers. I mean... I no doubt in my mind, if the dog had not been there and kind of, you know, freaked him out with all of her barking and it had scared him, I, I think that he would have tried to either hurt my mom or he would have come back. I mean, it sucks. I mean, it, it's, it's, I'm glad my mom's here and I'm glad that all this was was just like a, you know, brief encounter with this guy. I, I read that he's getting out possibly on, or he's up for parole in 2024. And I'm like, that's literally five years away. And that scares the crap out of me. So, I mean, I would hope that they would never let him out. But you just, like, literally never know. All right. Well, big thanks to Megan for being our first degree guest. You're so wonderful. Thank you, Megan. Um, Thanks for reaching out. And um, if anybody listening is one degree away from a murder or other stranger than fiction story, please write us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Fanick. Remember to give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. We are still picking winners to give some free week. first degree merch too. That's right. And I'm reading a um, a review right now. It's from an OG firstie. And she said, here's the thing about the first degree. You feel like you're hanging out with your friends and they're telling you a crazy story. And then you sit around so shook by the story that you have to do a deep dive into all the crazy psychological aspects to try to understand the motives. And that's how I feel with you guys. I feel like I'm hanging out with my best friends and then I have to do a deep psychological dive. I love dive. you, but you're our only, like, we're your only friends. <laughs> yeah. You don't have any friends. But, but yes, but I have to do a deep dive. Best you know, and only. A deep psychological dive after I talk to you guys. I need to do like a your deep motives. decompression dive she has into to watching after this. Arrested mm-hmm. Development. <laughs> well, if you guys need to decompress after this, you make sure to stick around because we are going to kill some time. Bye. Happy. Happy bring your teddy bear to work, baby. Because there are also some day. other crazy days you should look up yourselves that we don't <laughs> want to talk about. Today's not a good day. Bye. All right. Well, welcome to the killing time. <laughs> I fucking hate you. Sorry. Welcome to killing time. I feel like I need a, we need a snappier entry to it, but you know what? If you've listened to our first episodes, it takes us a while to flush things out or flush them out. We're, depending on how well, you think we're about. three creatives who work in the entertainment industry. So we have an idea and the other two have to kind of like pick it apart, stomp on it and then come around to it and then refine it together. Yes. So it's just a process because there's no one who's super passive in this group. No, like zero, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's like, we all have an opinion and then we have to, we veto each other and 
remember in the beginning of when we started doing the first degree that I wanted to talk about like a like a funny crime thing that happened. I think about that all the time. It lasted one week. Don't you remember? And it was somebody that I think farted on an airplane. Yeah, (laughs) I think about all the time. And And I was like, well, this didn't work, so never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Next week we won't be doing. No, the things that work stick. They do, or they just organically. Yeah. Okay, so this week we are going to talk about what grinds our gears. What annoys us in life? What just really makes our blood boil? Mm-hmm. Billy, would you like to start? I will start because it actually happened on the way here. My Uber driver was whistling. <laughs> oh, I hate like, that. I ha- I actually hate that. Was he whistling a song? Yes. And you know what a song it was? No- song? Well, no, this, the radio was on. And it was Grease is the Word, which is the opener for Grease. Oh, love Grease. Which is, which is great. And Wait, why are you saying no? Because I'm angry about the whistling. He's, oh. he's whistling. There's something that happens with it. I, I laid it out to my, my children right in the beginning. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't take it. That is probably my biggest pet peeve out of anything. Jack, please stop. I was working. <laughs> when I was working at Carga doing the last show I was doing... It's like a giant open space because it's supposed to be creative and like different shows just sit at different rows of tables, but it's one huge room. Right. No privacy. And people whistle. That's crazy. In there. And I'd be like, I'd stare at like, you know, the bosses and be like, how do they think that's okay when people are like on different TV shows are trying to work and they walk around like strutting, like (laughs) whistling around. I'm like, are you insane? And I said something to someone and then I made like a bunch of enemies. Everyone's like, he's so nice. Everyone likes that guy. And I was like, how he whistles. It's okay. (laughs) I, it's so selfish. Well, I just can't believe people whistle in general. Whistling is, seems like it takes a lot of effort. Like it's not something that you do just, like nonchalantly, I don't know. It's just a really weird thing like that tapping I, I thought, at your desk. Tapping I just thought a table. that people do it just in movies. Like I didn't think it was a thing that people. It's like twiddling your thumbs. Like nobody yeah. actually twiddles their thumbs. No, it's a very weird thing. It I, is, and, and you know, you have particularly you know the songs that have whistling in them too, and it's just like is you know. I only know rap songs that have whistling. Well, the, uh, sitting on the dock of the bay is probably the the most famous one by Otis sitting Redding. Sitting on the back of the bay is that the yeah, right song? Yeah, that's good. Okay, yeah, you, you got it. Close. <laughs> I just have a negative association yeah. with whistling because they men do it on the streets when you're trying to just get your like mail cat, and you're like that, in your jammies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, really? I feel like you're mocking me. Like, am I not hot right now? <laughs> that's what you're doing. Am I hot? Am I not hot? <laughs> I can't do tell. it. Please clarify. Yeah. Like, do it when I'm on my way to an Uber, like hot for a night out, but not like when I'm getting my mail. Yeah. I feel that. What you annoys know? you, Alexis? Well, there's the there's the moderate annoyance, which happens fifty times a day, and then there's like the bad ones. Okay, what's what's the moderate? We'll start with us like a light. The moderate is if I like step into an office of somebody else or I go to say something to somebody else and like I'm just trying to say a quick thing and then go back to what I was doing and then they talk to me <laughs> and the conversation ended and I'm trying to leave and they're like da-da-da-da-da, and this and that. I'm like I'm literally my back is to you and yeah. it like won't stop. And they're like, well, you know, in this one, and they tell me, tell me a story and I'm literally just like people. Okay. So here you go. People who don't understand cues, social cues, even just basic ones. Like this conversation is over. Yeah. I just asked you for 
basic information. And now you're trying to tell me about Starbucks, how they misspelled your name. And I'm like, I'm in an intense neurotic episode and I can't stand here anymore. Right. That's my, mm. that's what grinds my gears. Wait, was that the moderate one? Or that was, was the moderate one. Okay. Oh, boy. Oh, okay. Well, what's the serious one? The serious one is, um, <laughs> I'll come back to me for the serious one. Okay. okay. All right. I'll have to make Jack. sure, I'm going to just filter it through my brain to make sure it's appropriate. Okay. Jack, what grinds your gears? Well, a lot Because of- you know what? Because I will, I'm going to preface this with this. You seem to li- live... Because you seem mm-hmm. to live a very chill life. Yeah, like but on the surface, and I know it's different because on the surface, if you watch your Instagram, mm-hmm. and we know that you're also, you know, trying to show that it's not exactly that chill. Right. But you know what? It seems very, very well, chill. I'm a I'm a very chill person that gets annoyed by a lot of things. She doesn't put herself in any situations where she could be annoyed because mm-hmm. she knows herself. Yeah. Well, people in general just existing annoy me. Yeah. Um, I'll go for something extremely specific that annoys me that I thought about. And then I'll go to a very generalization of something that annoys me. Okay. The thing that's specific, very specific that annoys me is if you have a roommate or you live with somebody, significant other, and there's a washer dryer in unit and you don't take out the lint thing, you know, like when you go to yeah. dry clothes. That's like my favorite part of, is of taking, doing laundry taking is taking it out, out the lint and thing. And peeling yeah. it and okay. throwing it. Yeah. But you know, if you don't, if you don't clear those out, it can start a house start fire. A, uh-huh. Literally start a fire. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I have lived with roommates. I will not name names because they're all my best friends. <laughs> Louise? No. Anna? <laughs> Anna, is that you? Okay. Um, that just that's just like one thing that I'm like, ah, god damn it, not again. <laughs> um, my generalization thing that annoys me is um when somebody texts you. Okay. If somebody texts you that's maybe an acquaintance or like a work friend or something that you don't talk to normally, and they they have a question or they need to ask a favor, but they try to start with small talk. Like, before. hey, how's it going? Hey, what's new? Number one, I hate when somebody asks me what's new. Hey, did you see that new movie or whatever? And or just with like, that, what's yeah. been going on in your life? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, by the way, I need this favor. I would much rather just like cut, cut the shit the and just be like, hey, do you have this contact? Or hey, can you do this for me? I'd be like, yes, because that's how I approach things. Because nobody really needs to know about the weather. That's what, that's what grinds my gears. Yeah. Do you want to go back to your, did you flush it out in your head? You know, <laughs> it's like I'm conflicted because there are days that nothing bothers me and there are days that everything bothers me. I think it has to do with your menstrual cycle. <laughs> Pretty much. My hormones, my workload. I really hate when people take credit for my work. Mm. Um, you mean like when I say the podcast was all me? Yeah. No. <laughs> I did all this research. No. We're like the triage of perfection. I just mean like some people are just some people don't have work ethic at all and people will expect to have overnight success. They want to know they're like, how did you do like, how did you have your career or whatever? Like what one job can I get to get there? And I'm like, try not sleeping for five years, <laughs> like whatever. But no, it's just like I've people are just lazy. I think that I hate. I hate lazy, shortcut taking, mm. thunder stealing. Work credit taking people. Well, here's the problem. It's people. It's well, number one, it's fucking social media mm-hmm. because everybody sees Billy or me or you on social media. And it's like, oh, that looks easy. How do I do that now? 
And it's like, how long have you been in your career for? And you're, I mean, you're catapulting now, but I've been, yeah. I'm, I'm as far as journalism, 23 years, as far as true crime, 20 years. Right. So, I mean, they say it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. And a lot of the time it takes more. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you still don't see, but behind the scenes, all the bullshit that you have to deal with every day. So it's not giving up where it's like any entry level job in any industry, even if it's, you know, you know, finance or whatever, those entry level jobs don't get you that money and you have to stay persistent and really good at the thing you're doing and be the best for the shit money for the shit hours Mm -hmm. and not lose momentum. And I think that's where people give up or whatever, but it just takes that much. And then even when you're doing well, you still have to do it 10 times better than the other people to get to the next level. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 10 times harder. Everybody's very replaceable in that sense too. But that's the problem. It's like everybody looks around them and thinks it's so easy because you're only seeing like the highlight reel of whatever's going on. Yeah. I mean that graphic that you see all the time of the iceberg and like success is at the top of the iceberg and then they show the bottom of the iceberg and then it has everything and blood, sweat and tears and everything like that. I think that's really, really, you know, that, that, that hits home for us because, you know, it's one thing, yeah, you put out a book and then just like remembering not only how long it took to write the book and then edit the book and do all that stuff, but just really, it's my whole life. It was 20 years of stories. And well, and the only reason you got to write a book is because you have all this experience doing this one thing. It's not like somebody, it's not like a publisher was just like, sure. Random guy. (laughs) Yeah. Here's a book. Here's a book deal. It's, you know, it's doing all these things to make you credible to be able to do yeah. the things you're doing now. No, I really do think it's a matter of like attacking life from every angle because not only that, it's like once you achieve success, success alone will not make you happy. It's it's also nurturing your personal life and nurturing balance and self-care and all this crazy shit where it's like success alone. There's a million rich, miserable people. Yeah. Um, that balance is really hard. Balance really grinds my gears. I just want one thing to be to make me happy, and it doesn't. No, that's what I hate. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, like, why? No, there's not one thing that makes you happy. No, lots of things make me happy, right. but the idea of happiness. Oh, because there's a, if neglect- you're happy with one thing, something yeah. Because like, you think it's hard. Balance. It's, it's like yeah, Bal- balance and moderation is like the only key to it because success alone won't. Yeah, I mean. Lots of people who are super successful and traveling the country to, on book tours or whatever yeah. are lonely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, uh, that's Jared talks about that all the time where it's not that he is. I mean, he does get very lonely, like on the road, like touring the world. And if you're a musician or like if you're in sports or wherever, any kind of a job like that, I'm sure even when you're doing your book tour, it's, yeah. it's a very lonely place. Well, you get back to your hotel room and you're just like, all right, now what? Now what? Like all the things yeah. that you love are thousands of miles away. It's a hard thing to do. Yeah. It's like when <laughs> there's a great, I don't know if you guys ever listened to Howard Stern, but uh, Gary Delabate made a, a videotape to try to get a girlfriend back. And he found the videotape and he told the the crew about it. And the crew like gave him like $15,000 or something uh, or or they raised the money in order to be able to watch it. And it's so embarrassing. And he actually says at this point, which they use over and over again, where he's talking at the camera to his ex-girlfriend. And he's like, I feel like my personal, my my professional life is at a nine. And that's how he says it in his Long Island accent. And my personal life is at like a two. And I want, you know, and it's, it's sort of like that. So it's like, how do you get that? 
that, like you said, that balance between That's those me. two. Yeah, you need everything at like an 8.5. It's really hard. Yeah. It is. All right. Well, this was supposed to clear the palate, <laughs> but it just made us more depressed. You guys, <laughs> it's, not, it's not as sparkly as it looks on the outside. This didn't feel depressing. This felt like a breakthrough. I know. Do you feel like you're in therapy right now? Yes. Do you feel good? Second okay. day in a row now. <laughs> I go to therapy on Mondays, so. Well, it's Wednesday. Winter podcast. Right, sorry. Comes out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not Tuesday night. I right. Think, do you think people really out? don't understand that we are no. not recording live? Dude, with Lady Gang, well, okay, I think that maybe Should people. Should we stop are, recording this or we keep going? No, well, I'll just finish my uh, thought. Whatever. Okay. Sorry. I think <clears throat> now people understand a little bit, but when we started doing Lady Gang, people did not understand the premise of like batch recording because we all have full-time jobs and cannot meet every Monday night to get it out on a Tuesday. And they'd be like, Oh, did you see that Jack was in the same shirt for this picture as also this picture? <laughs> Are you serious? Oh yeah. That was, I feel like people understand it now, but in the beginning it was like, people were shocked. <gasps> like God forbid. Wow. So by the way, guys, this was recorded a week before it came out. Yeah. We're so, still in. We're still woo. in a week. I mean, we do. We, we all do, have lots of jobs. We do. Say, with the first degree, we stay quite topical. We yeah. record pretty much a week before mm-hmm. we put the mm-hmm. podcast out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, it's only because it, it takes so long to make that we can't batch record even we if we try. To. By the way, you guys, this forty-five minute episode takes four hours every time for you it takes me like yeah yeah, yeah exactly hours. <laughs> oh well this takes- is the t- you want to see the tip of the iceberg for this show <laughs> i don't even the know tip the, of the iceberg it takes is me 15 us hours. the bottom of the iceberg is, is alexis alexis. <laughs> <laughs> alexis is 20 hours of research yeah and then 10 hours of editing and then the interview and then the interview but i was i was what i was trying to say is it takes us we're here for four hours recording the 45 minutes together. oh yeah oh yeah i yes. mean and you guys obviously put tons of shit into it too not as much as you not as much as you i'm just a psycho (laughs) okay i'm sorry all right well you know what why don't you all on our facebook page our super secret facebook i am pmsing by the way okay (laughs) that's why i'm like this right now i'm having a hard day okay billy on our super secret facebook group tell us what grinds your gears yeah tell us what grinds your gears that's the theme of the week please don't let it be me (laughs) i hate it when alexis breathes or exists yeah (laughs) don't let it be alexis she's too fragile this week maybe next week next week we'll be fine all right did we have a sign off for killing time we're still we just killed some time we just killed some time go kill some time on our facebook page yeah bye bye